This hearing will come to order. Uh, let me welcome you all to the second hearing of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee on East Asia, the Pacific, and International Cybersecurity Policy in the 116th Congress. This hearing will be the first hearing in a three-part series to examine the implementation of the Asia Reassurance Initiative Act, or ARIA, which Senator Markey and I led in the 115th Congress and which was signed into law on December 31st, 2018. Today's hearing is focused on human rights, democracy, and the rule of law in the Indo-Pacific region. An essential component, building block component of ARIA, and an urgent priority for U.S. policy in the region. As stated in Section 401 of ARIA, the promotion of human rights and respect for democratic values in the Indo-Pacific region is in the United States' national security interests. Continued support for human rights, democratic values, and good governance is critical to a successful United States diplomatic strategy in the Indo-Pacific. In Section 409 of ARIA, Congress authorized over $1 billion in new funding to promote democracy, strengthen civil society, human rights, rule of law, transparency, and accountability in the Indo-Pacific region, including for universities, civil society, and multilateral institutions that are focusing on education awareness, training, and capacity building. What makes today's hearing especially timely and unique is that all three of our witnesses are distinguished human rights and religious freedom advocates, uh, advocates themselves, with firsthand experience in dealing with human rights abuses with regard to their communities inside China and Burma. Some of their family members and friends are detained and, personally, and persecuted to uh, this day. So I would like to thank our witnesses. Thank you for your courage in speaking to us today. Thank you for your words today. And I look forward to hearing their recommendation on how the United States can better prioritize human rights, democracy, and the rule of law in the Indo-Pacific region and certainly beyond as this eternal value of the United States. Um, with that, I will turn it over to Senator Markey when uh, he arrives, but we'll go ahead and start uh, with the, the witnesses today. Uh, and I will just turn it over to you and introduce you and maybe uh, uh, have your comments uh, and uh, hear from Senator Markey uh, shortly. Um, before I begin, though, with witness introduction, I would like to ask unanimous consent uh, to enter into the record a statement by Amnesty International prepared for today's hearing. We'll wait for Senator Markey to uh, make sure we get that consent. Uh, and then uh, to all witnesses today, we kindly ask you to limit your verbal remarks to no more than five minutes and your full written statements will be made a part of the record. Uh, I'm going to introduce all three witnesses. Our first witnesses is Mr. Rushan Abbas, who is the director of the campaign for Uyghurs. Uh, Mr. M Mr. Ms. Abbas, excuse me, Ms. Rushan Abbas, who is the director of campaign for Uyghurs. Ms. Abbas is a former student activist of the pro-democracy demonstrations at Xinjiang University in, in uh, 1985 uh, and 1988. Uh, she left Xinjiang in 1989 and came to the United States to study at the Washington State University. Since her arrival in the United States in 1989, Ms. Abbas has been an ardent campaigner for the human rights of the Uyghur people. When the U.S. Congress funded Uyghur language service at the Radio Free Asia in 1998, Ms. Abbas was the first Uyghur reporter and news anchor broadcasting daily to the Uyghur region. As she describes in her testimony, Ms. Abbas has close family members that are currently imprisoned in Chinese concentration camps in Xinjiang. Ms. Abbas, uh, we look forward to hearing from you. Today we're also joined by, uh, by Mr. Bushong Tsering, who is Vice President of the International Campaign for Tibet. Mr. Tsering was born in Tibet. His family fled to India in 1960 in the wake of Chinese Communist invasion. He studied in India and worked as a journalist in New Delhi before joining the Central Tibetan Administration in Dharamsala in 1984. 
He joined the international campaign for Tibet in Washington, D.C. in 1995. He is a member of the task force set up by the CTA to work on issues relating to the dialogue process with the Chinese leadership and was a member of the team led by the envoys of His Holiness, the Dalai Lama, in the discussions that they had with the Chinese leadership between 2002 and 2010. Welcome, Mr. Tsering. Uh, we look forward to your testimony. Finally, uh, joined by Mr. Toon Ken, uh, who is president of the Burmese Rohingya Organization based in London, uh, United Kingdom. Mr. Ken was born and raised in Burma and is a member of the Rohingya Muslim majority, minority. Excuse me. Uh, he has resided in the United Kingdom since 2004, where he founded uh, the Burmese Rohingya Organization, and in his current capacity has addressed to the British Parliament, the U.S. Congress, the European Parliament, and the United Nations Human Rights Council. In April 2015, he received a leadership award from Refugees International for his advocacy work. We welcome you, Mr. Toon, and we look forward to hearing your testimony today. Before I do that and turn to you, though, I would turn to Senator Markey for his opening comments. <coughs> thank you, Mr. Chairman, very much, and we thank you for this very important hearing uh, that we're having today and for your continued partnership on all of these issues. We applaud your courage to speak out in defense of your rights and are humbled by the personal sacrifices that each of our witnesses uh, are willing uh, to do on a daily basis. Uh, thank you for the sacrifices of your families as well. Mr. Mr. Chairman, we are able to accomplish a great deal uh, this year because of the Gardner-Markey Asia Reassurance Initiative Act, uh, or um, uh, uh, ARIA as it is called. It was a statement of American commitment to our friends and partners throughout the Indo-Pacific. ARIA covers a wide range of issues. It is no coincidence that this subcommittee's first hearing on this legislation in this Congress is addressing human rights, democracy, and the rule of law. These principles are not just integral to advancing U.S. interests abroad. These principles define us. For some, it is easy to question the importance of human rights in our foreign policy. The current administration's policies often highlight these doubts. Is there a trade-off between promoting human rights and protecting the political, economic, and military security of the United States? I believe history clearly demonstrates that the answer is no. When governments deny the fundamental rights of their people, they take their countries down paths that result all too often in mass atrocities, humanitarian crises, and civil war. These tragedies transcend borders, destabilizing entire regions, and impact the interests of the United States, our allies, and our partners. And when America stays silent in the face of these abuses, we cede our position as the last bastion of hope everywhere fighting for the rights and dignities each of us deserves. And to whom do we cede this moral authority and leadership? Authorita authoritarian governments, strong men who are proliferating throughout the region are becoming increasingly emboldened, not just in how they repress their own people, but also in how they export their inhumanity to others. So Mr. Chairman, I believe it is, in part, our responsibility to shine a light on some of the most pressing human rights concerns. Today's hearing is an opportunity to give a voice to the voiceless and to discuss what America can, should, and must do to defend those being persecuted. After all, we are nearing the two-year anniversary of the mass atrocities committed by the Burmese military against the Rohingya people. 
And while the United Nations and others have used the terms, quote, genocide and crimes against humanity when referring to what happened to nearly 800,000 Rohingya, the Trump administration's lack of any such assessment is glaringly conspicuous. And the uh, Chinese government has established a virtual prison state under the pretext of counterterrorism. Security checkpoints, police, intelligence operatives, and facial recognition technology are just some of the tools Chinese authorities use to carry out a massive surveillance operation against the Uyghur and Central Asian minorities. Over one million people are still in internment camps, and the Chinese are threatening anyone trying to highlight these abuses, even activists residing in the United States. And 60 years after the exile of the Dalai Lama, the Chinese government continues to apply the same heavy-handed tactics of repression against the Tibetan people that it has carried out for decades. But we should be clear, these are not the only human rights crises in the Indo-Pacific. <clears throat> Last week, with four other senators, I introduced a bipartisan resolution condemning the Duterte government in the Philippines for committing extrajudicial killings, falsely imprisoning human rights defenders and independent journalists. In Brunei, the government recently enacted brutal new criminal laws that include death by stoning for sex between men or for adultery, and amputation of limbs for theft. This is nothing short of barbaric. And in Cambodia, the Hang Sen regime continues its campaign to dismantle the country's democratic institutions, holding a major opposition leader under house arrest and jailing journalists. These developments are extremely troubling, but I hope that calling attention to them will help reduce their prevalence. And I hope that today's hearing will demonstrate that promoting human rights and defending our national interests are not mutually exclusive, but rather mutually reinforcing. So again, we thank each of our witnesses for all of the work which they do on human rights. Uh, and I thank you, Mr. Chairman, for this very important hearing. Thank you, Senator Markey. And I would like to submit, uh, to the re for the record, a letter from Amnesty International regarding today's hearing. Beautiful. Thank you. Uh, without objection, that will be entered in the record. Uh, Ms. Abbas, if you would like to proceed with the testimony. Uh, thank you. Thank you, Senator Gardner and the members of this subcommittee. Since September 11, 2018, my sister is detained in China's Orwellian political education camps, we call it concentration camps. She's detained in retaliation for my public advocacy. On September 5th, 2018, I spoke at the, one of the think tanks in Washington about the conditions of the camps, outlining the fate of my in-laws. Six days later, my sister, Dr. Gulshan Abbas, and my aunt were abducted. I have been a proud citizen of the United States for 25 years. Yet the long arm of the Chinese communist regime has extended its reach across the borders to ravage my heart by jailing the only close family I have back home. My sister was a retired medical doctor. The only reason for her abduction is guilt by association with me an American who dared to exercise her freedom of speech in the US. I am extremely worried for my sister. I'm not sure if she is able to tolerate the harsh conditions of the camps for long and survive when she has 
than facing food and sleep deprivation, dehydration, forced medications, and physical and mental torture for over seven months now. Please help us get information about my sister, secure her release. My sister has only two daughters and they both live in the US. My niece Ziba, a US citizen, came from Florida to be with us today, where she lives for her husband and her nine months old baby. She's here now. She wants to know if her mother is alive. Her husband and I both served this great country as DOD contractors. My brother, Dr. Rishad Abbas, is also among us. He's a US citizen contributing both as a senior scientist and a human rights advocate. He, this is a targeted attack on American citizens. Ms. Zainab Ablajan here with us too. She is the wife of prominent Uyghur scholar Yalkun Rozi. Yalkun Rozi worked on compiling Uyghur textbooks with the Chinese government's request. With the current crisis, he was sentenced 15 years in jail. Like so many other Uyghurs in US and around the world, our stories are not unique. Um, almost every Uyghur in US has friends and family who are currently detained, sometimes by dozens and dozens of family members are missing. The only crime of my sister Ms. Ablajan's husband and the other millions of Uyghurs suffering is being Uyghur Muslims. What the Chinese government is doing is evil, crime against humanity, and at this point, it has become about the right to live and the means to survive as human beings. It challenges basic integrity and the world cannot be silenced when over a million Uyghurs and the other Muslims are being detained, stripped of their culture, and forced to swear blind loyalty to the communist Chinese regime and the Xi Jinping. China should be held accountable for its actions. We appreciate the strong words coming from the State Department and Vice President Pence, but at some point, words are not enough. Action is needed to hold Chinese officials and businesses accountable. Push back against the Chinese government's narrative and actually demand China to close the camps. We truly appreciate the leadership of Senator Robio and the Congressman Smith on the CECC as they started raising these issues over a year ago and continue to press the administration to act. The letter sent to the administration last week by Senator Robio and more than 40 members of the Congress is important. The Senate should stay on the top of the administration to use global Magnitsky sanction to target the Chinese officials who are responsible for these crimes against humanity. Please pass the Uyghur Human Rights Policy Act sponsored by Senator Robio and the Senator Menendez. Over 25% of the Senate have sponsored. We hope the bill will be passed quickly. Instruct the FBI and the State Department to work protect Uyghur Tibetans and the other activists from threats or coercion from the Chinese affiliated agents. Authorize to doubling the broadcast time for Radio Free Asia Uyghur service. RFA reporters have provided the best information about what's happening on the ground in the Uyghur region. RFA reporters have families detained for retaliation for their work. Of the money authorized in the Asia Reassurance Act for the promotion of democracy, human rights defenders, 
and the Young Leaders Section 409, 410, and 411. We ask that money can be designated to assist Uyghur, Kazakh, and the other groups to document the atrocities, document Chinese government's propaganda globally, and to support activities to preserve cultural traditions. Point out the administration that if China is successfully keeping it from acting to deter the targeting of American citizens, and to hold China accountable for the concentration camps. China has already won in linking anything, whether money from the trade or fear of retaliation, to America's ability to stand up independently against evident evil. If the administration waits to act until after the trade talks end, will it ever act when it has conceded such a linkage and granted China such a leverage over US actions? Thank you for allowing me to testify today. Thank you, Mr. Boss. Uh, Mr. Sharon. Chairman Gardner, Ranking Member Markey, Senator Kuhns, uh, thank you for uh, giving us this opportunity to testify about Tibet to the subcommittee. I would like to request that my full testimony, including three attachments, which is the statement of His Honor the Dalai Lama on his succession, a uh, report by the Foreign Correspondents Club of China on access to Tibet, as well as a joint op-ed by 30 pa European parliamentarians on the issue of reciprocity with China be included in the record. Without objection. Thank you so much. My testimony will focus on the 60 years of political subjugation of Tibetan people by the China that includes a consistent pattern of violation of their fundamental human rights. I'll outline China's attempt to isolate Tibet from the rest of the world and why, show why Tibet matters uh, in the context of the Indo-Pacific region. In 1959, China took over complete political control of Tibet. Since beginning March 10, 2019, His Holiness the Dalai Lama and the Tibetan people began marking the 60th anniversary of the Tibetan National Uprising, the escape of the Dalai Lama and his eventual crossing into freedom in India, and the establishment of a democratic governance system which is known as the Central Tibetan Administration. In the past 60 years, the Dalai Lama had the far-sighted vision to undertake initiatives and establish institutions in exile that have empowered the Tibetan people to preserve and practice their religion, tradition, and way of life. At the same time, the Dalai Lama has continued to work for a peaceful resolution of the Tibetan problem. In this regard, his steadfast commitment to keeping the Tibetan struggle non-violent in the face of tremendous challenges remained an inspiration to non-violent movements throughout the world. In Tibet, the Tibetan people have endured 60 years of political subjugation Chinese leaders say they seek stability in Tibet, but they strive to achieve it through an iron fist, rather than understanding the grievances of the Tibetan people and finding ways to address them. These hardline measures are sowing seeds of instability in Tibet, exemplified in acts of protest, including self-immolation. Access to Tibet is one of the issues that is facing uh, by all concerned. The problems faced by journalists wanting to cover Tibet has been clearly outlined in a position paper issued by the Foreign Correspondents Club of China, which I mentioned earlier. On March 25, as mandated by the Reciprocal Access to Tibet Act, the State Department submitted to the Congress a report on U.S. access to Tibet. We would like to commend the State Department for the report which finds that China systematically impeded Americans' travel to uh, Tibet in 2018. But reciprocal access to Tibet is an issue faced not just by the United States. On March 14, more than 30 parliamentarians across Europe published an op-ed saying Europeans should also look at the issue of reciprocity and pass a similar legislation. 
In the past 60 years, the Chinese authorities have adopted, adapted a policy from a policy of total destruction of a Tibetan religion and culture to one of controlling them to serve its own political objectives. The case of China wanting to appoint the next Dalai Lama is a clear example, as they tried to do with the issue of the Panchen Lama. The Dalai Lama has categorically maintained that only he can make a decision on his reincarnation. In 2011, he came out with a formal statement explaining the reincarnation system and how he intends to go about on the issue of his succession. By wanting to select the next Dalai Lama, the Chinese government aims at extending its control on Tibetan Buddhism in, in the Indo-Pacific region with clear geopolitical implications. If not challenged vigorously by three countries, this decision could affect the religious freedom, not just of the Tibetans, but of millions of followers of Tibetan Buddhism worldwide, including which affects the United States' uh, security interests. A majority of the several hundred Tibetan political prisoners who have been detained uh, have been done solely for the assertion of their identity, whether calling for the protection of their culture or displaying their reverence to the Dalai Lama. The fact that even after 60 years of occupation, the, the historical bond between the Tibetan people and the Dalai Lama remains strong is a reminder to the Chinese government that they have failed in their policies and they failed to understand the Tibetan people. The Chinese government knows that there's a problem in Tibet and only during the lifetime can there be a possibility, lifetime of this Dalai Lama can be, uh, there be a possibility of a lasting solution. The Asia Reassurance Initiative Act uh, rightly places the issue of Tibet within the parameters of U.S. security concerns in the Indo-Pacific region. In this uh, context, the issue of water in Asia is something that can be taken up uh, by the United States Congress. The Tibetan Plateau is today the largest repository of fresh water, and China's attempt to use manage the Tibetan resor water resources has implications on downstream uh, countries. Just the other day, the Atlantic Council came out with a report on Himalayan uh, Asian water that uh, recommends that the United States create a coherent Asia policy that includes water as a pivotal uh, element. I have some recommendations. Uh, first, highlight Tibet uh, as a key factor in the Indo-Pacific region strategy. Update and strengthen the Tibetan Policy Act, which is a comprehensive expression of United States support for the Tibetan people. Uh, they the Congress should think of uh, incorporating recent developments, including clarifying US policy on the issue of reincarnation of the Dalai Lama. And the administration should be asked to perceive the United States' long-standing goal of establishing cons consulate in Lhasa. And finally, the United States should incorporate water security into the national security, security strategy and explore using platforms like the Quadrilateral Security Dialogue and the Lower Mekong Initiative to create awareness about China's usage of Tibetan water and its impact on the Indo-Pacific region. Thank you so much. Thank you. it, Mr. Mr. Toon. Chairman Gardner, Ranking Member Markey, and distinguished members of the committee, thank you for the opportunity to appear before this committee to testify on the ongoing genocide of the Rohingya people in Burma. I speak as a survivor of decades-long persecution by the government of Burma, which is now carrying out a genocide that has long been in the making. My family experienced fast hand waves of government orchestrated military attacks and mass violence against unarmed and peaceful communities throughout Rakhine region. In fact, Burma, despite continuous promises to the international community to improve the lives of the Rohingya people, to listen to recommendations from Kofi Annan Commission, to set up its own investigation into abuses, continues to fail the Rohingya community. 
there is absolutely no political will or desire by the Burmese authority to improve the lives of the Rohingya people. There is a government and a military that have actively tried to wipe us out as a people for several decades. They continue to deny my community as an ethnic group integral to the Union of Burma, depriving our children any meaningful access to education, denies us access to essential health and other social services, and was maintaining conditions that are designed to bring about the eventual destruction of our entire community. Mr. Chairman, it is genocide. The intentional destruction of an ethnic community, our Rohingya community that Burma has commissioned. Recently, at the Free Rohingya Coalition Conference, I heard with my own ears one of the distinguished members of the UN International Fact-Finding Mission, Professor Radhika Komaraswamy, asked the question, is what happened to the Rohingya genocide? What else could it be? Legal, humanitarian, and religious organizations, including a coalition of American Jewish groups, have also issued a statement calling this is a genocide. This is welcome support, but we need to move beyond what civil society globally has widely recognized as Rohingya genocide. We need action from governments and international community. That is why the hearing today is so important. We must stand together and push for a change. International community must do more. Never again is a meaningless phrase unless it, it is back up with action. A powerful action that the United States can take is to reintroduce the Burma Human Rights and Freedom Act and pass it and sign it into law. It authorized critical humanitarian assistance for Rohingya refugees in Bangladesh. It calls for a safe, dignified, and voluntary repatriation process of Rohingya refugees to Burma for any repatriation process to be developed with significant input from the Rohingya community. It further calls for the restoration of full citizenship rights for the Rohingya people. The repatriation process and citizenship is important as China helped to draw up a plan where no single Rohingya is prepared to return Burma voluntarily. This is not acceptable. For, for 40 years, we have been promised safety by Burmese government, only to be slaughtered and violently deported subsequent to our return. As in the cases of Tibet and Uyghurs, China has been an evil force in our oppression. China protects Burmese perpetrators instead of standing up for the Rohingya people. Burma. It is important to remember that United Nations uh, fact-finding mission has stressed that NLD civilian government is also complicit the genocide due to their crimes of omission and other acts of dismissal of genocide findings. Burma's non-existent democratic process must not be pursued or support at the expense of several million of Rohingya people, where they are in Burma, in refugee camps, in Bangladesh or in diaspora. Mr. Chairman, U.S. government and international community must act now. I call on the U.S. Congress to recalibrate its policies towards Burma as exemplified by last year's Burma Human Rights and Freedom Act. 
I ask you to reintroduce it and pass it to work with the Rohingya diaspora and the survivors in the camp to ensure the protection of the Rohingya people. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Mr. Toon. Thank you all for, again, for your testimony and words today. Um, I, I want to ask a question to all three of you. Um, we've had uh, considerable testimony here today about uh, what more the United States can be doing when it comes to uh, the, the genocide uh, in Burma taking place against the Rohingya people. We talked about the Uyghurs and the concentration camps and the uh, conditions in these uh, camps, uh, work conditions, uh, civil liberties, the religious freedom concerns. Uh, we talked about uh, Chinese declaration of the next Dalai Lama. And let me be very clear, the United States Congress will never recognize uh, a Dalai Lama that is selected by uh, the Chinese. Uh, this is something, as His Holiness has laid out at the secession, uh, only then will the U.S. follow that, uh, that secession as laid out in your testimony. Um, to all of you, the United States has condemned um, the concentration camps in China, condemned genocide. I want to drill a little bit more further into that question of what the U.S. has done and clearly um, the concerns in Tibet. Ms. Abbas, to you I would ask this. What have you seen from other countries around the world when it comes to the condemnation or actions taken against the Chinese uh, for the imprisonment of the Uyghur people? United States is uh, really leading this uh, action. They're doing something uh, by condemning. Um, Turkish government is the only government uh, you know, uh, saying about the concentration camps uh, is not uh, right and they should be closed, condemning. But unfortunately, because of the Chinese influence with Chinese market, trade, and the debt threat, the, uh, the uh, debt trap that they are doing around the developing countries. They are buying out the silence of the other countries. Currently, OIC, the Organization of Islamic Cooperation, passed a resolution <coughs> approving that the uh, treatment of the, the Uyghur Muslims. Did you, did you um, say approving? Mm-hmm. Approving, unfortunately. It's all because of the Chinese influence, Chinese money. It's really disappointing for 57 member states of the Islamic countries um, doing such a shameful act. Um, Canada, Australia, UK, and New Zealand is uh, uh, having uh, fact-finding uh, hearings, and the, uh, the congressmen, I mean, um, the uh, representatives, the lawmakers, are condemning the Chinese concentration camps. That's about what's happening, but we really need to see some actions. Mr. Toon, to you on the genocide taking place, um, we've heard various words uh, used to describe what's taking place by this administration in Burma. What is your belief the U.S. position is as it relates to um, the current uh, genocide in Burma? Mr. Chairman, thank you very much for your question. And uh, it is important that we are a people, you know, as I mentioned, uh, in, as I read in my statement, more than 40 years we've been facing this persecution is systematically, you know, destroying our community. Uh, 
this is time now where eight, uh, you know, where eighty percent of Rohingya population already fled, you know, from Burma because of systematic policy to wipe out our community. And finally, UN fact-finding mission mentioned what is happening is a genocide. So when I visited to the camps, I heard from the big team, they have a, a kind of high expectation from United States. United States being a champion for the human rights and democracy for Burma. So when United States is supporting human rights and democracy for the reform in Burma, it is we need to look at you know, a Rohingya community facing genocide and we need to look at how could be it possible, uh, you know, to end this genocide fastly to bring perpetrators to the justice. Justice mechanism all need to be used. And we welcome uh, targeted sanctions, but still we have not seen the commander-in-chief who mentioned in Washington Post that unfinished business of 1942, and that's commander is still not in targeted list and other commanders who ordered to slaughter, to rape, to mass kill, uh, to, uh, to throw you know, children to the fire. They're still not on the list. This is very important, I believe, to put on the sanction list to those military who are, and also military-related companies are there. In Burma, even though we have seen Daosan Suchis in power. There is military still and backbone. 2008 constitution, you know, guarantee them power and the military companies related, those need to be sanctioned from US. And also, it is important that, you know, United States have to call what we big teams want to call it is a genocide. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mr. Soon. Senator Markey. Thank you. So, uh, Mr. Tung Kin, um, what is the impact of the United States remaining silent on this issue of whether or not it is a genocide, of crimes against humanity? What, what, what does that mean to the world when we do not speak out? It is very clear, uh, um, Senator Markey, you know, we have to see that it's a kind of giving, if not pushing them, pressing them, it's not taking them action, they are encouraged, is they are encouraged to move forward. And we have seen that it's not only Rohingyas, other Kashin Shan minorities, crime against humanity and war crimes are going on. Even today, Rakhine State, Arkhan Army and Burmese Central Armed Forces are fighting, humanitarian aid has been blocked. It's because of why international community not pressing enough and why genocide is going, uh, we need more stronger pressure. Otherwise, you know, this impunity they are enjoying. So if the United States was to speak out, what would the impact be in terms of additional pressure on the Burmese government? Uh, that could be, you know, we have seen in the past uh, long time pressure from international community. That's what this military came to a kind of 2008 constitution coming up and they did election. They worry, they care international pressure. That's why, uh, that's why uh, Burmese uh, military and the government, they care uh, about it. If 
this uh, U.S. government push it is they will, we believe that this human rights violation will stop. And uh, we believe that they cannot go along with these murders again and again. Okay, so thank you for your statements on the need for targeted sanctions. Thank you. And I could not agree more. I recently wrote a letter to the State Department and the Treasury Department asking why the Trump administration had not sanctioned additional officials for the August 2017 attacks against the Rohingya to include the country's commander-in-chief and deputy commander-in-chief. So this is the letter uh, which uh, I sent on just March 19th. And even though, and I ask unanimous consent, this be included in the Without objection. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. And even though the United Nations and others have cited these two individuals as ultimately responsible for military orders that led to the horrific attacks against the Rohingya, the United States has taken no action against them, which is unbelievable. Let's say the administration does not take your advice and decides not to pursue further sanctions against these individuals. What do you think the impact of that decision not to sanction would be in terms of the attitude of the government and military in Burma? Definitely, that will embolden military to move forward, as I mentioned earlier. And the other side, you know, the military is uh, moving not only Rohingya, other minorities in Burma, they are uh, still believe that there is no one to press them. No, so they can, they can go with these murders along. And you know, we need to look at Rohingyas are a community is facing 21st century genocide. And you know, when I visited to the camps, one thing I heard from them is they want justice. So this is important, United States support all justice, any uh, mechanism to bring those perpetrators. Okay. This is so, very important. So you mentioned also going against military-linked companies, uh, bearing in mind that enterprises managed by the military are tied to a number of economic sectors that employ ordinary Burmese, and the goal of sanctions should not be to target military, uh, should, it should be uh, to target uh, military officials responsible for human rights abuses and not economically punish the Burmese people. What are your recommendations for targeting companies that would shape the military's behavior but not hurt the Burmese people themselves? Um, as a whole, Obama, we have seen for 19, since, 19, since 1962 military coup power, military been on top of everywhere. Military is controlling uh, you know, military cronies there and military controlling most of the business. So uh, we believe that military are totally control of uh, most of the business. If this been blocked and this been freeze and military will not be able to uh, move forward and they will feel the pressure, definitely I can say that. Thank you. You mentioned in your testimony, China continues to protect the Burmese military from condemnation at the United Nations, and they have continued to discourage international efforts to support the plight of the Rohingya. In addition, there are disturbing reports that Chinese officials have given Burmese officials advice on how to effectively repress Rohingya minorities still in the Rakhine state. What, can, what more can you tell us about China's ties with the Burmese government? 
China, firstly, is still influential, uh, influential to the military. They, they have a pipeline and you know port in Rakhine State. And as a whole, Burma, this is China is really influencing economically, politically. That is, we can see, and even civilian government being still under influence of China, as far as what we can see now. So, what what would your recommendation be to the United States to reduce <coughs> China's negative influence on human rights in Burma? Sorry, what would your recommendation be to us? that is the United States in terms of actions we could take to reduce China's negative influence on human rights in Burma? Uh, this is very important that, you know, China been long influential. So on that note, on that point, we need to look at uh, if China influence much more further in Burma, there will be more human rights violation and, you know, you can see that China is blocking when genocide is going on as a whole country. They are blocking in Security Council and others, and they are even influential, influencing Bangladesh to bring back those refugees where we do not want to return without our rights and protection. So uh, that will be encouraged to China if U.S. Can, will not do anything. So U.S. have to step up as a geo geopolitically that China influential should not be there. So are you concerned that the Chinese might export the technologies which they're using against the Uyghurs to use in Burma uh, against the Rohingya? That could be. Yeah, that could be. Yes. So you are concerned. Thanks. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator Markey. And uh, I am going to head to the floor here for a, a, a speech on a nominee as well as a vote and turn it over to Senator Markey and then I'll come back as quickly as I can if the hearing is still uh, continuing uh, to uh, allow Senator Markey to vote. Uh, a quick question before I, I leave, though. Um, the Asia Reassurance Initiative, uh, as we've talked about, uh, various sections that, that address human rights, uh, democracy, uh, and rule of law, uh, provides significant funding, a billion dollars in authorizations from the U.S. Uh, government to address these areas, including uh, radio, you know, the, the BBG and other Radio Free Asia efforts and programs. Um, ARIA is an important platform for us to have this discussion as we look at our policy toward Burma, as we look at our policy uh, toward China and Uyghurs, as we look at Tibet, as we look at Hong Kong and so many other areas where we see growing concerns about uh, rights, uh, freedoms, uh, and uh, rule of law. Uh, one of the challenges we have, of course, is speaking with one voice as it relates to Burma. Uh, as recently as the Defense Authorization Act of last year, uh, there was language initially in the legislation that would have um, given more uh, opportunities for the U.S. government to work with uh, the, the military in Burma, despite the ongoing concerns of genocide, the reality of genocide in Burma. Uh, and we were able to get that language stripped out of the Defense Authorization Act, but it shows that uh, the government, uh, the U.S. government, is not speaking with one voice uh, and one clear uh, message as it relates to the atrocities in Burma. So, Ms. Abbas, quickly, and then I'm, go I'm, I'm going to step out, uh, but I want this for the record. Could you talk a little bit about the dollars authorized by ARIA, where you believe they could be spent? Uh, Radio Free Asia is something you mentioned. How could we target dollars, money, support from ARIA to more effectively counter uh, violations of human rights uh, throughout Asia uh, and to help assure uh, voices of freedom are able to, to secure a foothold. With that, I'll turn it over to Senator Markey. 
the uh, Radio Free Asia Uyghur services being very um, essential when there is a uh, strong information blockade by the Chinese government. It's really difficult to get the, the real uh, reality out about this atrocity. So Radio Free Asia reporters are really working really hard. So we do need that. That's the most essential part. And also we have organizations that need support. We have so many activists that we are doing this uh, uh, advocacy work as a, like a, a part-time. For example, myself, I have a full-time job and I'm doing advocacy work almost full-time. So the organizations, human rights organizations being funded uh, by this uh, money also really supports. Uh, World Oil Congress needs to have offices in the uh, major um, uh, like political hubs in the other countries as well. This is really essential to get the Uyghur voice out, Uyghur advocacy and activism out internationally. Okay, and also we have um, so many Uyghur students here in the United States because of their parents are taken to concentration camps and also the uh, uh, financial assets are being frozen. They cannot receive money. So the, the Uyghur students studying in the universities are unable to continue their education. So we really need the help with that as well. Thank, Thank you. you. That's, that's very helpful to us. Let, let me just follow up with you, Ms. Abbas. Uh, given the terrible nature of China's repression of the Uyghur and the Central Asian minority communities uh, in Xinjiang, the clearest question that comes to mind is what should we be doing to hold the Chinese officials accountable? One way for the United States to try to change Chinese government behavior would be to place uh, Chang Guo, the top official administering the repressive policies in the region under U.S. sanctions. However, the administration doesn't appear to be taking any action. Do you believe that sanctions against Chinese officials will be effective in countering their egregious policies? Yes, very much so. Um, that's at least United States government is taking action, doing something to imposing that currently existed, the Global Magnitsky Act, and the uh, sanctioning some of the Chinese um, uh, officials who are responsible. And also, um, we have current trade negotiations. This atrocity should be included in the trade talks. The human rights must be included in the foreign policy of this administration. So it's very crucial. Do you have a list of officials, Chinese officials? Yes, we do. Who you believe should be sanctioned? Yes, Uyghur Human Rights Project and the World Uyghur Congress have given those uh, names to the uh, State Department. We do have a list of the names. Is there anyone in particular who you think should be at the top of that list? Yes, Chen Quanguo, who is the party secretary for uh, Xinjiang Autonomous Region. He was the party secretary in Tibet. That's where he started actually targeting religious uh, figures there, taking them to concentration camps. He came to our province in August 2016. And then uh, just uh, two months later, he started his harsh um, uh, the, uh, policies against the Uyghurs. And he's the number one person. Okay, excellent. Um, Senator Coons. Uh, so, um, Senator Coons, in his usual bipartisan, pluperfect form, 
has indicated non-verbally that he would Indiana. prefer to he would prefer to defer to Whatever. his colleague from Indiana, Senator Young. Well, and thank you, Senator Markey, and thank you, Senator Coons, for your characteristic committee. I'm grateful for that. Um, thank you to our witnesses for being here today, uh, Mr. Kin. In September of 2018, I, along with Senator Menendez, asked our Department of State to provide a formal legal determination regarding the actions of the Burmese military to Congress. On December 3rd of last year, the, the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum announced it found compelling evidence that the Burmese military committed ethnic cleansing, crimes against humanity, and genocide against the Rohingya. How would a U.S. government formal legal finding that genocide was committed help bring accountability, but also further long-term reconciliation in Burma? First thing, uh, when we have seen fact-finding mission, UN fact-finding mission already mentioned what's happening is the genocide is clear. And um, it is important U.S. government should call what the legal name is a genocide. U.S. Holocaust Museum already clear, declare what's happening to the Rohingyas is genocide. And um, it is important to bring those perpetrators to justice, really important to push and also uh, What's happening to now is genocide is still ongoing in Rakhine State, where recently, last week, a, a dozens of dozens of Rohingya been killed while Arkan Army and Burmese Armed Forces are fighting. The through helicopter Burmese Army, uh, you, you know, shoot many Rohingyas, and they saying that this is accident and they did not aim to do that and a kind of same excuse, uh, blame, blame excuse they are trying to do. So is genocide is ongoing when it is important that we need to bring those puppets, the justice mechanism all need to be used. Well, I think that's especially important as we head into next year's elections uh, because of course at, at some point we want to have a functioning uh, government representative of all the peoples. Uh, of, uh, of, of Burma. And so now it strikes me as a critical time to diplomatically and programmatically drain the enabling environment for violence and support the people of Burma so that those 2020 elections uh, are the best they can be for uh, the future of, of, of the country. Um, are there ways in which the United States, to your mind, Mr. Ken, uh, can uh, best invest in conflict prevention programming in preparation for next year's elections? Uh, Senator Young, that is a very good point, but we need to look as a whole Burma, you know, it's not only military, civilian government also dismissing these genocidal acts and genocidal findings. It's not only uh, only military, uh, you know, killing the Rohingyas. The other side, civilian-led government, Aung San Suu Kyi, 
party and her government ministers are spreading hate speech and they are not allowing humanitarian aid access and others. I campaigned for Dao San Suu Kyi for many years for her release in this con uh, Senate and Congress. I campaigned for her release and other political prisoners. I was long-time supporter of her, but what we can see here is we had a low, uh, high expectation in 2015 election, but we have not seen any, and she is totally silent, and so we believe that, you know, um, as a whole Burma, we need to look at, of course, we should support 2020 uh, election, inclusion of Ro Rohingya. At the same time, we need to push how constitutional change and others how systematic change in Burma that is very important. Well, and, and all of this is, is more deeply rooted, uh, isn't it, in, in ethnic conflict, um, in, um, in, in some really deep things that have ravaged the country and left um, um, Rohingya and the Chin minority marginalized, poverty-stricken, um, and um, living in a country in which they're really, they're not represented and they don't have a meaningful voice. We've seen some attempts at addressing these issues at the 21st Century Penglong Union Peace Conference and that didn't produce the desired outcome, unfortunately. How do you envision a peace process progressing, Mr. Kin, and, and what type of democratic reforms can lead to a national reconciliation and a true democracy emerging in Burma. Is, is it? Uh... Uh, as a whole Burma, we have to see that is a constitutional problem. First thing, ethnic people, they should get, they are demanding federal union. We have not seen any ethnic groups are, you know, enjoying their rights. You can see why still there is a 21st century Pelong the, there is nothing much peace process is ongoing. Everything been a stall. And military is increasingly fighting Kashin, Rakhine, our sister community and others. On the other side, Rohingyas facing ongoing genocide. So as a whole country, we really need to focus how can be changed, US government can push a stronger pressure, this is very important. Because, you know, uh, the ethnic Kashins, uh, they are in ITPs and Rakhine, more than 30,000 ITPs and Rohingyas are still not allow basic rights, you know, to move from one place to another, education and others. So we don't see, we have seen that even, you know, government have set up commissions uh, to investigate their, there is no such thing talk of citizenship rights, full citizenship rights and others. And government, NLD-led government is pushing NVC, which is national verification card, which is illegal, uh, legalizing Rohingyas or illegal immigrants. So we can't see, friendly speaking, as a genocide survivor, as my grandfather was a member of parliament, as I was brought up, born and brought up in Arkana State, I left, my age was 17, I've been, I grown up there. I have seen how systematically going on against Rohingyas and other minorities as a whole country. So for me, it is much need to be done from US government to push pressure. And of course, we should support so-called uh, democratic reform, but 2020 election, all ethnic minorities must be 
al must allow to vote and allow to be member of parliament, particularly Rohingya people. We had we been we had right to vote and right to be member of parliament since 1936. In 2015, we were not allowed to vote. So, to 2020 election, it is important Rohingya were. Uh, restoration of full citizenship right before that and allowed right to be voted, right to be member of parliament. And also ethnic groups all need, they have to give their rights and recognize the federal union is important. Otherwise, these fightings will not end because uh, we have not seen any, uh, any progressive things even from NLD-led civilian government. They Thank you, Mr. Kin. I'm, I'm out of time. I'm, I'm grateful again for your thank testimony you. today. Thank you. Okay. Senator Coons. Uh, thank you, uh, Chairman uh, Gardner and Ranking Member Markey, for convening this important hearing. Uh, I apologize. I will be brief because we have a vote that is uh, about to be called. Um, I'm particularly grateful for your leadership on the Asia Reassurance Initiative, uh, and I'm eager to work with you to ensure full and appropriate implementation of this um, significant legislation. As the co-chair of the Human Rights Caucus here in the Senate, uh, I want to thank all three of our panelists uh, here today uh, and for your important human rights work in Asia. Um, I am particularly focused on the um, atrocities against the Rohingya and I'm hosting a photo exhibit today uh, in the rotunda of the Russell Senate Office Building and I encourage uh, anyone concerned about or interested in uh, better understanding the ongoing genocide against the Rohingya to come and visit this um, disturbing photo exhibit. I, I also have concerns about the treatment of Tibetans and Uyghur Muslims, but given the press of time, I'm going to focus my questions, um, if I could, on following up on Senator Young's questions. Um, it's clear to me that you support a prompt determination by our State Department um, that the atrocities against the Rohingya constitute a genocide. What else do you think? Why is that determination important? Um, what would be the legal consequences uh, for the Burmese government if we reach that? Uh, and I'm concerned about the lack of accountability um, for um, an ongoing genocide um, by leaders in Burma. If you have a, a concise answer to how more uh, that determination would affect it, I'd appreciate it. Firstly, we've been facing this uh, more than four decades. So UN fact-finding mission already mentioned what's happened to the Rohingyas is genocide. So as Rohingya have high expectation from U.S. government. So whenever I visited to the camps, Rohingya victims, Rohingya survivors, they asked me, uh, tell our U.S. friends to change our situation to stop this genocide. Mm -hmm. So they want to see also what we are facing as a Rohingya, I as a survivor, we want to see what we are facing. We want to call it legal name, genocide. And and do you, of think course, will, do you think that will help um, prevent other countries from forcibly repatriating Rohingya uh, to Burma in, in a way that might increase their danger? Definitely. Now, uh, that will stop. Now, India is deporting the Rohingya. Saudi also deporting some Ro Ro Rohingyas, even though they've been living a long time, they're not access to education and health care. So it is important that these survivors need to get protection from uh, internationally, other countries as diaspora. You can see 80% Rohingya population are out of the country. So they need proper protection, international, uh, international 
uh, you know, other con uh, from international community and other countries. That is very important. My, my last question, are there other countries in the region that are playing a constructive role? I hear um, what you're describing about India's actions. Are there constructive regional players on trying to confront and resolve this? ongoing human rights crisis? Uh, some countries, yes, some countries we have not seen, uh, particularly India, they are deporting the Ro Ro Rohingyas, where 35,000 Rohingyas are in India. So they need to be, pro they need protection. And also, you know, Thailand, and of course, on top of that, we need to look at Bangladesh. Bangladesh, where a million Rohingya people we can see that very near future they will not be able to return because the genocide is still ongoing uh, uh, the, 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 the other side of the uh, country, you know, the, in Burma. So what 60% uh, are children in refugee camps, the survivors. What will be their future? How United States can help to get, for the long term, we need to look at how we can uh, Educate them. We worry that our young generation will be will face ex exploitation because political uh, uh, atmosphere is not as good as other countries there in Bangladesh. So there are s a lot of many women, children are 60 percent. So we need to look for the longer term how they should be recognized also in Bangladesh as a refugee. They should get. Uh, Bangladesh government should lift restrictions and also Bangladesh government must stop that to relocating 100,000 refugees to Bashansha Island is very important. So when U.S. government recognize that genocide and action, comes, uh, action need to become and also other countries, they will uh, treat Rohingyas as a genocide survivor, they must treat as Genocide survivors and they will get protection. On top of that, we belong to Burma. We want to be, a, we are a part of Burmese uh, society. We are not demanding a state or anything. We want to get back our ethnic rights and citizenship rights back. So I would like to appeal today the Senate to pressure any way you can to restore the rights of our people. And of course, on top of that, justice and all mechanisms needs to be explored. It's very important. Also, ad hoc tribunal and other uh, uh, bringing to the justice is important, those perpetrators. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you all for your testimony. Thank you. No. Thank you, Senator Coons. Um, Facebook in Burma, um, there's a real role which um, social media plays in allowing for dangerous speech um, to be uh, used in uh, Burma uh, in a way that uh, uh, promotes violence against the Rohingya, promotes violence together against other uh, minorities. I think it's quite clear. So I wrote a letter to uh, Facebook uh, questioning uh, this policy of allowing Facebook to be used uh, for that purpose within uh, Burma. To date, I've been very unimpressed with Facebook's efforts to consider the views of the Burmese civil society and its decisions that have an impact on the country's treatment of its minorities and its overall efforts to achieve national reconciliation. The United Nations officials just last week said that the company's efforts to curb hate speech online are, quote, still insufficient 
and that there is still, quote, denigration of the Rohingya on Facebook's platform. Do you believe that Facebook's efforts to address hate speech has been sufficient? Of course, they have to stop it. They've been uh, a part of it. When after 2012, 140,000 Rohingya become IDPs in Sitwe, Arkana State. And through Facebook, Mabata Group, 199 Group, all in particularly uh, uh, including uh, uh, racist and uh, you know, extremist Buddhist monks, Viratu and others, they spread up hate speech through Facebook. Facebook have done a big damage to our community while we are facing genocide. And all, as a whole Burma, and all, not only Rohingya, other minorities they faced. But we still, we have seen re uh, recently Facebook have closed down some pages. It is really good, but we st I, I don't think it is enough. And Facebook should deal with the communities who are really suffering, has especially. Has Facebook reached out to you? No, not at all. It has not. That, Thank you. That's not good. We, I, I would ask Facebook um, to reach out to you, and we will make that a specific request Please. Uh, to you to Please. help you to facilitate a conversation. What do you think that Facebook can and should do to better address the danger of speech and the targets uh, that targets the Rohingya? Uh, do you have any specific recommendations? It is important Facebook being, uh, you know, used by, um, as a whole country in Burma mostly, not even Twitter, you know, in Burma. So. Facebook can educate many ways how a community uh, suffering as a, uh, in Burma, you know, how, uh, you know, 80% population been get rid of systematically by the government and how important inclusion, uh, you know, all uh, need to live harmony with uh, side by side other co communities in Burma. That is a key role they can play also they can Educate many other ways how uh, Burma, uh, you know, human rights violation been facing, and many different ways they can educate their normal, ordinary Burmese people to see Rohingyas and how other minority rights been important internationally. How what action should uh, uh, there is a lot of ways Facebook could do. Excellent. Thank you, uh, Mr. Searing. We have noted earlier this year. Uh, is the 60th anniversary of the Dalai Lama's exile from Tibet. Clearly, the persecution of the Tibetan people is one of the longest-running challenges to the international community's human rights record. And I'm not sure we have seen much progress in promoting human rights in the region. Do you think U.S. programs to support human rights in Tibet have been effective? And if not, what recommendations would you make in order to improve U.S. programs uh, to press for better human rights? Senator, the United States government has been an important player in terms of uh, encouraging the Chinese government to resolve the issue of Tibet, uh, including uh, altering human rights policies, but broadly speaking, in finding a political solution to the issue of Tibet. So that position is good. Uh, and in fact, it's one of the reasons uh, that helped the Dalai Lama's envoys in starting a dialogue between the, uh, the envoys and the Chinese government between 2002 and 2010. Since then, there have not been any uh, resumption of the dialogue process. And uh, one reason could be uh, that uh, in the past, the Chinese government realized that the United States was serious in its effort. 
but uh, since 1997, all American presidents until President Trump have spoken out publicly asking the Chinese government to talk to His Holiness the Dalai Lama and his representatives because the United States feels that the middle way approach of His Holiness the Dalai Lama is the right approach. And so far, we haven't seen President Trump uh. make public address, nor has Secretary uh, Pompeo met a public address, or in their summits with the Chinese president, we so haven't you, seen- you, you want President Trump and Secretary Pompeo to make public statements. We need that because then the Chinese authorities realize that the United States is serious. Um, and what impact do you think <clears throat> publicly calling out the lack of access given to U.S. visitors and officials will have on Chinese government behavior in Tibet? I think uh, lack of access to Tibet, which is uh, again in the Reciprocal Access to Tibet Act, as well as the Asia Reassurance Initiative Act, both have a significant uh, message to the Chinese government because China uh, always, when you or when the international community raised the issue of Tibet, the, one of the Chinese defense mechanism is to say that you're in, interfering in the internal affairs of China. But both the Reciprocal Access to Tibet Act as well as the Asia Reassurance Initiative Act says that uh, uh, national security of the United States and the rights of the American people are also involved in the matter of Tibet and therefore uh, China should act. So coming from this perspective, the Chinese government cannot claim that uh, the United States is interfering in China's internal affairs when you take, about, take up the rights of access to Tibet for Americans, just as Chinese have uh, free access to the United States, and therefore it's important. In, in Title IV of the Asia Reassurance Initiative Act, uh, it, it supports additional resources for a human rights Defenders Fund for the Indo-Pacific. Can you speak about the challenges and opportunities such a fund could have in supporting human rights defenders in Asia? Senator, is that addressed? Yeah, to oh, any so, of you, oh, yeah. Uh, um, we see that ARIA has provision for that, and also I think in ARIA specifically talks about uh, uh, Tibet in the context of uh, sustainable development, promotion, promotion of education, promotion of uh, environmental con conservation. So these money could be allocated to these as set in area to the Tibetan community, both in Tibet as well as in exile, that can help uh, the Tibetan people preserve and promote their identity because that, that is one way of confronting China's effort at uh, destroying Tibetan culture and way of life in Tibet. We ask that money can be designated to assist the Uyghur, Kazakh, and the other groups in it to document the atrocities happening in back home. And also uh, Chinese government's propaganda globally about their activities and to support the activities to preserve the Uyghur traditions and the uh, sustainable development and education in the Uyghur communities in China and abroad. Okay, excellent. Mr. Tungkung, any recommendations for how a human rights fund might be used out of Title IV of the uh, ARIA Act? I think uh, f for Burma, it is important to support uh, ethnic minorities, civil societies. Particularly, it is very important and also, I mean, for the Rohingya people, 
there are 800,000, almost a million in camps. It is important we need to empower community to build up where our young generations are there. It is very important to support, particularly in Bangladesh. I strongly request to look at how we can build up Rohingya young people in the camps and supporting human rights uh, to educate them. Excellent. Thanks. Thank you. Well, thank you. And thank each and every one of you for your incredible leadership on human rights. Thank you for spending your lives uh, helping to shine a spotlight on what needs to be known about human rights abuses uh, in your own countries of origin, but in countries all around the world. That is the job of the United States. We are not only the uh, political and economic uh, and uh, national security leader of the world, but we're also the moral leader. We should be. Uh, and when we remain silent on human rights issues, um, we send a signal that the United States has gone out of the human rights protection business, and that is not who we are. Uh, the United States must be the moral leader uh, of the planet. That is the expectation. And when we speak on these moral issues, the rest of the world has to pay attention. So I would call upon the Trump administration to step up in each one of the countries that we are hearing from today. I think it's absolutely imperative that they do so. And you will be hearing voices from this committee on an ongoing basis. So I just can't uh, thank you each enough for everything that you uh, continue to do. And to you, Ms. Abbas, I'm going to uh, work with Senator Gardner to, uh, to work to maybe spotlight what the Chinese have done to your family members. Uh, I think we have to highlight that more. When you speak, your own family should not be punished back in uh, China. So we are going to, uh, we're going to try to work together here to make sure that we put more of a highlight on what happened in your particular instance, because it's a perfect example of how the Chinese government does operate with regard to the Uyghurs, but it's also a perfect example of what they're doing in Tibet uh, and actually the aid and comfort they're giving to the Burmese government as well. So that's a big part of what we're going to be uh, trying to work on in the uh, coming weeks and months. Uh, and uh, uh, Senator Gardner is still over on the floor waiting uh, to speak. It's just a little bit delayed over there. So with that, um, I will um, close off this hearing. Uh, and I want to thank everyone for attending today's hearing and to the witnesses for providing us with your testimony and responses and for the information of all members. The record will remain open until the close of business Thursday, including for members to submit questions for the record. And I would ask the uh, witnesses uh, to respond as quickly as possible to the questions that will be presented to you uh, in writing. So with all of that, um, we thank you for your leadership, and uh, this hearing is adjourned.